Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded for my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just uh, pray together for a moment. We thank you, Father, that uh, you set before each one of us a particular challenge, a particular race to run, a particular calling. And we pray this morning as we look at these uh, wonderful words from Isaiah that you would encourage us in that calling, in that race, in that particular thing that you have for us to do, that we might be faithful to Jesus. Amen. Is that working? Michael, can you hear me at the back there? Yeah. Can you hear me at the back? Anybody hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. All over the world um, this weekend and next weekend, preachers will be sharpening their pencils and tapping their keyboards as they extract sporting illustrations from the Bible. Olympic fever will grip the minds even of the unsporty preacher. We have with us here this morning Rupert Jarkham, who's the vicar of Holy Trinity, Cambridge, who's going to be the speaker on our church weekend next year in March. And Rupert's here to pick up every possible sporting illustration he can for the next two weeks. Rupert and Liz, welcome to us. It's great to have you here. These preachers will delight to discover that tennis was played in ancient Egypt as Joseph served in the courts of Pharaoh. That the first disciples played cricket and Peter stood up and was bold. That Ezekiel enjoyed speedway and rode across the desert in a triumph. 
that Jacob and God engaged in an early form of Greco-Roman wrestling. But Paul was happy to advocate boxing, clearly unaware of the potential for brain damage or perhaps just advocating punches to the body. I pummel my body, he wrote. But the writer to the Hebrews thought that the marathon was a better illustration of the Christian life than the 100 meters. And you may ask, how do I know that that is what preachers will be doing uh, over these next two weeks? And it is because I can assure you there is no one who has extracted more biblical contortions about sport from the Bible than me over the years. So today I want to uh, reverse the, protests, uh, the, pro the, the process slightly and draw out some important differences between Christian discipleship and an athletic activity. Instead of laboring the connections, I want to point to five vital differences in the hope that it will encourage you in the race of faith. And I hope that I hope they're going to come up on the screen. Have you got a PowerPoint there, William, for me? I hope you have somewhere. Yeah, great, thank you. The first point is that superstitions are not needed. Faith in Jesus is all you need. There's an extraordinary story in Matthew chapter 16, I just want to read it in a moment, where Jesus calls his disciples to reject the demand for a miracle and put their trust in truth revealed in God's Word. If I just can read it to you, Matthew 16, don't turn to it. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning, red sky at night, shepherd's delight. You know how to interpret the appearance of the skies, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Sports people look for a miraculous help, a superstition. Isaiah says that those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who hope in the Lord, those who trust Him, those who wait for the Lord, different ways it can be translated, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. Now, sports psychologists will tell you that belief is a key factor in sporting success, they will say how a golfer, for instance, needs to visualize his putt going into the hole and believe that that is its destiny. I tried this on Wednesday at the, at the church golf day with remarkable success, I have to say. It was a very big decision today whether to wear my Olympic shirt or the shirt I won at the golf day. Really, really difficult. It was only a silver medal, I have to admit. Andy Murray would have been asked before his final last Sunday against the greatest tennis player that has ever lived, do you believe that you can beat him? And Andy Murray would have answered, I believe I can. And he had some evidence for his faith. Federer is old. I mean, he's 30, for heaven's sake, really ancient. Uh, Murray had his own good form and fitness to go by. He would have pointed to the help of his new coach, Ivan Lendl improving his mental attitude, which was, I think, evident to all. But he may also have clung on to some new superstitions, like his new habit of looking up into the skies, which he won't explain why he's doing that. But it's a new thing that he's doing, which we've all noticed. Perhaps Andy Murray has other super secret superstitions. Many sports people do. 
They change their shoes in a certain order. They do up their laces in a certain way. They travel to a match with a certain person or by a different route each time. And some, of course, take it to quite absurd lengths. And these little superstitions that people have, and they're very important in sports people's lives, are religion substitutes. They have no moral power. That is, they require no adjustment to the key things in a person's life. They are simply requests for a miracle. A player might have had a late night out before a game and be thoroughly unprepared, uh, but still attempt to compensate for that with some silly superstition. I remember one England cricketer coming with a similar way to compensate. He, he, he was distracted during an England uh, international match by the fact that he had made a muddle over his complimentary tickets and he had both his wife and his two mistresses in the same crowd watching him at a test match. A somewhat disorganized piece of uh, ticket distribution on his part. And, uh, uh, in order, in order to get a bit of help with this, he wanted me to pray with him and think, that, and think that God was on his side. That is superstition. How different is the attitude that Isaiah advocates? Solid, sensible faith, patient waiting on the great God who has revealed himself in creation and through history, as Isaiah 40 says. Would you compare a lucky charm to the Lord, or, or Lord God Almighty? Would you cross your fingers or touch wood rather than entrust your way to the one who stretched out the heavens? Eric Little, who's the hero, of course, of Chariots of Fire, is reputed to have said, I believe that God made me and that he made me for a purpose, which, of course, to be a missionary in China. But he also made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, Eric needed no finger-crossing or lucky charms. He knew who he was. He knew what his identity was. His identity was in Christ and not in being a runner. And that is a key difference for the, between a, the superstitious athlete and the faithful Christian. Our identity is in Christ, not in what we achieve, whether it's in athletics or something else. So Eric trusted in the Lord, and of course he certainly ran and did not grow weary. So, faith, not superstition. Secondly, qualification is not required. Entry is by invitation and command. Qualification is not required. Entry is by invitation and command. It's been a desperately tough few weeks for the Olympic hopefuls who have dedicated most of their recent times, could be a good part of four years or even longer, to the hope that they'd be selected for Team GB for the 2012 Olympics. This will have involved huge amounts of discipline, almost certainly sacrificial family support, vast sums of money, some from sponsors, of course, but much from personal accounts and family savings as well. There will have been special diets and food supplements, endless training sessions, time trials. Selectors will have come and watched them. They would have received regular reports on their progress. Medical experts of all sorts will have assessed them and checked them out and reported back to the selectors. For many, qualification will have just been missed and it will have been a crushing disappointment. For, for every successful athlete, there are probably hundreds of disappointed ones. To be selected for the Olympic team requires a massive effort, huge sacrifice, and is then dependent on the whim of flawed selectors. 
So entry itself for the athletic race is a huge gamble. How different, how different is our invitation to the Christian life? Mo Farah or Jessica Ennis bring their supreme fitness to the Olympic Games. What do we bring? Of course, we bring our supreme unfitness. The very first games that I was a chaplain at was the, the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh in, I think, 1984. And one day in the village there, I bumped into the javelin thrower, Tessa Sanderson, a really lovely, bubbly character whom I had seen the week before on Songs of Praise, just as they got a Songs of Praise this evening with uh, athletes who are taking part in the Olympics telling their story. So before that Commonwealth Games, uh, Tessa was on selecting her favorite hymns. I'd never met her before, but I bumped into her in the village and said that I was delighted to see the program and uh, know that she was a Christian. Oh, she said, I'm not nearly good enough to be a Christian. I'm not nearly good enough to be a Christian. So I said, oh, great. I said, that's the most important first attitude that you should have for being a Christian, knowing that you're not good enough. So do you see how Isaiah puts it? He looks at the world and sees this great creator God in whom we can trust, working out his purposes through his people in history. The people are special. They are selected, if you like. They are the chosen people. They are Team Israel, if you like to put it like that, commanded by God to be in the race of faith. But how does he describe them? Grasshoppers. They are like grasshoppers compared with the Lord God Almighty. And the Olympic Games will rightly, in a way, elevate ordinary human beings with remarkable talent to the level of heroes and heroines. But we and they are grasshoppers in comparison with the Lord God Almighty. And of course, we Christians believe that this awesome, incomparable God has, so to speak, come into our stadium. He's clothed himself in our running strip. He's experienced the lowest of lows, death on a cross, and the highest of highs, resurrection, so that we can share his victory ceremony. Just believe in him. Just trust in him. That is all that we need to do. That is what Isaiah encouraged the people to do. Just trust in the Lord. In fact, uh, during our summer services, we're going to be looking at some of the heroes of faith from the Old Testament, some examples of people, champions of faith from the Old Testament who did that, who followed Isaiah's advice and trusted in him and were winners, even uh, if in the world's eyes sometimes they suffered greatly. We're going to be looking at that during the evening services in the summer. So qualification is by invitation and, and by the, the, the entering the Christian life is by uh, invitation and by command, not by qualification. Thirdly, competition is not important. Competition is not important. The first shall be last. A great debate rages, some of you will be involved in it, in especially in the world of physical education, about the merits or otherwise of competitive sport. And one of the reactions to the Olympic Games is some people feel that it is uh, over-competitive. Some people see competitive sport as an encouragement to selfishness and others as a spur to excellence. You'll not be surprised to know that I'm in the latter camp. I'm in favor of comp competitive sport. I think it is good to try and win, and learning to win and learning to lose graciously is an important lesson for life. But for the Olympian, competition is everything. You must go faster, higher, stronger, 
than your opponent. My first Olympic chaplaincy experience was in Seoul, Korea in 1988. And one evening I sat uh, with a group of about 20 Christian competitors from around the world in an open space in the Olympic village in Seoul, Korea. We were a Christian gathering from around the world. We sang Christian songs for a while. The sun was shining. It was a beautiful, warm evening. And then a Nigerian 400-meter runner who rejoiced in the name of Innocent Egbeniki asked everyone to share a prayer request. And it was much as you would expect as we went round the circle of athletes. Prayers for injuries to be healed was, of course, a, a very popular prayer. Prayers for family back home who were being missed. Prayers for teammates who were struggling in one way or another. Prayers that the athletes might honor God in success or failure. And one of those sitting there was Chris Akabusi. I can't remember what his prayer request was, but it would have certainly created a smile or a laugh. But the last man up was Innocent Egbeniki himself, as we'd been all the way around the circle, it got back to Innocent. And Innocent prayed this. These were his exact words, as I recall them. Remember, Lord, he said, I only, among all these athletes, am innocent. <laughs> so please, please do not let me finish behind Akabusi. <laughs> it was, as you can imagine, very, very funny indeed. And of course, in the, in the Christian race, we are not competing against others. Indeed, our heartfelt prayer is that those running with us will run well. But we are competing. St. Paul said that he disciplined himself. He pummeled his body. He, 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 he took very deliberate sacrifices. He describes it in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. He makes a very deliberate, deliberate effort to train in his Christian life to compete against himself in order to be a better Christian. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he says, I've fought the fight, I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. The writer of the Hebrew says, strip off the sin that clings so tightly. And my guess is that there's not a single believer here in church who does not know that their righteous inclinations, their desire to do good, compete with their selfish and sinful desires. Our struggle, says Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. And the front line of that battle is fought in the individual life of every Christian. Jesus said that the first shall be last and the last first. It's not a favorite text of sports people, that. But it's crucially true. We follow the one who was first, the great champion of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He became last so that we might become first. Many of you here are parents, as we are, uh, or grandparents. And the greatest reward in any parent's life, or one of, the, one of the great rewards in any parent's life, is to see their children flourish, to look at the pride on a parent's face as little Johnny gets their form prize at school or wins the egg and spoon race on sports day, whatever it might be, or perhaps older ones as they get, as you wait nervously for GCSE and A-level results. When they come through, the joy the parent feels is sometimes even greater than that of the child in those situations. And so in the Christian life, there is no greater joy than seeing those we pray for and encourage in the Christian race running well, 
We're not competing against Christians. We're wanting them to do really well, to go all the way to the finishing line. That is our hope. Our competition is not against others. We do not compare ourselves with others. The competition is against the sin in our own lives. I'm going to speed through my last two points as uh, time is nearly up. But uh, my fourth point is this, that performance enhancement is allowed. Performance enhancement is allowed. The Spirit is with us. I suppose it's inevitable that there'll be a drug scandal during the Olympic Games. So desperate are some to win that they take performance-enhancing drugs, and some probably will be caught. I was in Seoul, Korea, when Ben Johnson was the supposed winner of the 100 meters in world record time, and then he was tested positive and stripped of his gold medal, a defining moment in the battle against drugs. And I watched the amazing Flojo, Florence Griffith Joyner, her painted nails and her flowing locks, smashed the 200-meter world record. She actually never, never tested positive, but was dead before she was 40. And more recently, the athletics world has, of course, been stunned by the story of Marion Jones. The Bible says those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will fly. They will run. They will walk. They'll get high on God, he says. We do not run alone. I want you to listen to a, a poem that Catherine Collins, who's here this morning, is going to read for us now. Catherine, if you could come and just read your poem, which makes this point. Catherine was creative in this very week, which was very convenient for me. Thank you, Catherine. The Race of Life. The Christian life is one big race that's different for us all. Some sprint from start to finish, whilst others trip and fall. Most find hurdles on the path, some stumble over these, some leap them all with confidence, while some fall on their knees. Some know that God is with them, running by their side, whilst others try to run alone, and some just simply hide. God tells us to throw off our sin and try to persevere, even when the race gets hard, we'll always find him near. He'll be there at the finish line to welcome me and you. So let's run the race before us, knowing God is running too. Thanks, Catherine. We believe that God has run in Jesus. He runs with us by his Spirit. He trails, blazes into eternity. And daily the Christian can call upon the performance-enhancing presence of the Spirit to help us over the next hurdle or overcome the next temptation. We are allowed to have our performance enhanced by the presence of the Spirit in our lives. Lastly, winning is guaranteed. Finishing is all that matters. Winning is guaranteed. Finishing is all that matters. Paul wrote that he pressed on to win the prize of sharing heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he was not perfect. He knew that he occasionally stumbled and fell as a Christian, and we all know that that's true of us too. We all know that if winning in the Christian race depended on beating Jesus' time, so to speak, uh, I doing it as well as he did, then we would not be amongst the medals. It fascinates me. Uh, I'm quite fascinated to some extent by athletic performance, needless to say, and by extraordinary performances. And it fascinates me that Jonathan Edwards' triple jump world record in 1994, so that is, uh, what is that? That's uh, 14 years ago, 16, 18 years ago, 18 years ago, uh, uh, is still not been improved. He jumped 1829, 
And uh, I'd be surprised if the gold medalist in the triple jump in London even gets to 18 meters to win the gold medal. In other words, Jonathan was far better than all who have come after him, as well, of course, as being far better than all before him. And some here will remember, going right back to 1968, Bob Beeman's astonishing long jump in Mexico. Bob Beeman jumped two feet further than anyone had ever jumped before. He jumped, I made a note of this, eight meters, 90 centimeters. That's 29 feet, two and a half inches. And the world record before was just over 27 feet. So suddenly he jumped two feet further than anybody else. You know, if you remember that jump, you can still see it on the internet. I looked it up this week. It, he nearly jumps out of the long jump pit. It's quite extraordinary. But eventually, even Bob Beeman's leap was beaten. And so will Jonathan's be, eventually. But there has been, and there never will be, a life like Jesus's. He is the great champion. And that is, uh, that, this is what he says uh, to us about entering the Christian race. He says that those who would trust in him and seek to follow him will be in a place prepared for us by him. Our gold medal does not depend on us winning the race, but on Jesus winning the race. It's such an important difference. And the resurrection, which if you like is the greatest medal ceremony accomplished by the greatest anthem ever, proves that Jesus is the winner. If Jesus is the winner and rose from the dead and said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and you will be with me where I am, then we too can anticipate standing on the winner's rostrum. We have merely to complete the race. We can do that. We really can. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Amen.